Well, we're going to continue in our study this morning in our series on the Psalms. And as we do so, I want to draw your attention to what theologians have called the Pentennial Psalm, being a psalm of confession, a psalm of confession. And it's really one of the greatest psalms in all of the Psalter. So turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And listen as I read this wonderful psalm of David. Psalm 32. David begins, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account, and whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let every holy one pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You guard me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. I will give you insight and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose harness are bit and bridle to control them, otherwise they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in Yahweh, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Well, you can see why I would say that this is one of, if not the greatest of the Psalms in the Psalter. And that's why the title of this Psalm is, The joyful song of a forgiven man. The joyful song of a forgiven man. In fact, according to a 5th century biographer, this psalm was the favorite psalm of early church father Augustine. And the reason that that is so significant for you to understand is because Augustine was probably the most familiar of all the early church fathers with the psalms. He has the longest theological work, a running commentary on the Psalms, that project, a project that took him 26 years to produce, and one that ended up being the largest work written in Christian antiquity. 26 years, John. 26 years. No, ours won't be that long. It won't. Yet of all... <laughs> I'm not supposed to lie. Yet of all the Psalms... He commented on, it was this psalm, it was Psalm 32 that captured his heart. It was this psalm all the way until the very end of his life that held his attention. In fact, Augustine's friend and biographer wrote this, quote, As Augustine lay dying, he ordered those psalms of David which are especially potential to be copied out. And when he was very weak, he used to lie in bed facing the wall where the sheets of paper were put up, gazing at them and reading 
and copiously and continually weeping as he read. But of all the psalms that he gazed at, of all the psalms that he loved, it was Psalm 32 that he loved the most because, as he said in Latin, intelligentsia prima, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. To know oneself to be a sinner. That's the beginning of knowledge. And that is the psalm that we have before us this morning. Here we have Augustine lying in bed, moments before the world would pass into eternity, gazing in all his heart to these words, because as he stated so beautifully, he knew himself to be a sinner, and might I add, a forgiven sinner, a forgiven, fully filled with joy sinner, awaiting the glories of heaven. And so as the tears that he shed at the end of his life came, they were not tears of sadness. They were not tears of regret. No, the tears that he cried surely were true, but they were tears of, of, of wonder and, and glory and tears that flowed down his face knowing that he was full of joy, nearing heaven, and relief and gratitude filled him like at no other time in his life. Such is the emotion of Psalm 32 this morning. And the beginning of it tells us, even in the superscription, it's a Moscow of David, meaning in many different ways, it can be a, a Moscow, meaning a written instruction. It's a written instruction given to God's people. And there's different reasons for this. Though the setting of Psalm 32 is not written out for us, we don't know exactly of the historical background in the psalm itself. It's best to see this as being a reflection of David after his other famous psalm being Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as you know, chronicles his sin with Bathsheba. And it's a psalm of deep emotion and it's a psalm of profound yearning for the clean heart that had been soiled by this horrific sin. It was this raw nerve of pain and cutting self-loathing for all he had done. And in the 12th and 13th verse of Psalm 51, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Therefore, many theologians see Psalm 32 as David's Moscow, his teaching that he learned from Psalm 51 that now he says he will share with Israel. You see, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 go hand in hand together, and it's very important that you understand that. So at the end of our time today and the weeks to come, while I have opportunity to preach, I'm going to follow up the Psalm 32, which is part one today. Part two will be next time with a series of messages on Psalm 51 as well. But first, this morning, I want to bring before you part one of a two-part message on Psalm 32 because it's here that with Augustine that we find the joyful song of a forgiven man and we hear and learn the lessons that he is giving to us, the lessons that wisdom taught him as he went through the dark despair of his life. Now, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. I'm going to repeat them ongoingly. But these are four lessons of a repentant sinner. If you're trying to look at what's in this psalm, it's four lessons of a repentant sinner that are designed to drive us towards God. 
four lessons of a repentant sinner that are given to us so that we might forsake sin that easily dominates us and instead be glad in Yahweh. And the four lessons are, and I'll state them quickly and then we'll go back through them. Number one, true happiness comes from a forgiven heart. That's verses one and two. True hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. We'll see that in verses three and five. True harbor comes from a prayerful heart. We'll see that in verses 6 and 7. And lastly, true hope comes from a teachable heart. True happiness comes from a forgiven heart. True hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. True harbor comes from a prayerful heart. And true hope comes from a teachable heart. And if you notice as I was kind of chronicling through those, these lessons, that outline begins every time with true, true, True. And the reason is because David is painting for us what true life really is. What life is as it should be. A life that is distinguished from a life of sin. A life that is different from the life that so many other people may convince themselves is life. And as life should be or ought to be. David says, no, what we have here in this Psalm, Psalm 32, are lessons teaching us about the true meaning of life the true quality of life, the kind of life that shatters the sin-engulfed life of lies and embraces the path of living that has been given to us by the Creator and Savior. And so with that in mind, what true life is, not what life has been convinced convinced you that it is, or not what others have convinced you that life is, what God says is a true life begins with, number one, a wonderful thought, that true happiness comes from a forgiven heart. True happiness comes from a forgiven heart. And where do I get that from? Verse 1 and 2. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and whose spirit there is no deceit. You can see that the end of the lesson here in Psalm 32, where he says, Be glad, verse 11, in Yahweh, and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart, comes at the very beginning as well. It's bookend by these two realities, that the end is the towards which all life is focused. And that end, that goal that gripped Augustine's heart and that grips all of the hearts of those who have come face to face with their sin before a high and holy God, thrice holy, thrice wonderful, is that the one who's been truly forgiven is truly happy, abundantly happy, happy in a way that transcends explanation, which is partly, of course, what Pastor John was preaching about even this morning. Both here in verse 1 and again in verse 2, David just begins this teaching by telling us that true happiness, true blessedness, true life is not a life that's committed to sin and deceit, but rather it's a forgiven life that is a blessed life. And of course, that's no surprise for us to see this blessing, this beatitude come so quickly at the beginning of this Psalm, because we have seen Beatitudes like this, blessed be, blessed be, from the very beginning when we started this series in Psalm 1. Both here in the first, the Psalm 32, and in Psalm 1, we have this idea of blessing. It's a common theme in the Psalms. 
108 times in 98 verses with approximately 47 of those times referring to blessing the Lord, about 57 times referring to God blessing men. All of that begins, the Psalter in Psalm 1 that began our journey as well as the same kind of idea that begins in our Lord Jesus' ministry on the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who weep. The idea of God is, and what he's trying to communicate to us both through David and through the Lord himself is the fact that a kind of life that you have right now that you may not want but you have designated as happy It's not true happiness at all. In fact, the Hebrew word here is actually a plural, which denotes either a multiplicity of blessings or an intensification of blessing. This is reality. This is the reality of the saints. This is the reality of those who have given their lives to Yahweh. Joy and bliss and the kind of happiness that is deep and profound and lasting and never-ending that strikes you in the heart and mesmerizes you by the grace of God. This is not superficial joy. This is not a worldly happiness that comes and goes depending on our circumstances. So many people in our world have no more joy than a championship football game or or some kind of worldly amusement. This is the condition of a man or a woman or even a child who has come to Christ, who first and foremost has been miserable. This is a person who has been confronted with their sinfulness. This is a a man or a woman who have mourned, as the Beatitudes say. They have seen who they are before a holy and righteous God and have shrunk before Him and they've cried for mercy before Him and they've begged Him for forgiveness. And as a result of that begging and pleading, God has given birth to joy and blessing and the soul that once was in turmoil now is at rest with its maker because he has birthed them again. He has given them new birth. But even after new birth, even after that moment that God has forgiven the sinner of the sin of unbelief, comes the ongoing struggle of remaining sin the sin that remains within us, the sin that is powerful to the conscience of a purified life. And that sin is ever before a true child of God. That sin, that awareness of sin never goes away and it must be continually confessed and continually repented of and continually forgiven by God over and over again. Though you have been forgiven as a sinner Your communion and nearness with God is restored every single time. And each time the sinner is granted that restorative forgiveness, joy, blessing fills the heart. And people don't understand why you are the way that you are. They don't understand, as Peter says, what is the hope that lies within you even in the midst of suffering, even if the circumstances don't change because their standing before Yahweh has changed. Because the way they are before God has changed, they are in communion once again with the God who loved them and gave himself for them. At the time that David is writing this and thinking about the blessedness of what has happened in his life and his his communion now that has been restored with the Almighty, historians tell us that this psalm would have been sung in a temple ritual, perhaps the Thanksgiving ceremony in which 
the worshiper offered a sin offering and then gave thanks for deliverance, possibly even from physical sickness, as we shall see later on in verses 3 and 4. But the true deliverance is the blessedness of knowing that the worshiper is forgiven, that God has forgiven the man or woman who's come to him in sincerity of heart, despite what was happening in his life, despite what was happening in her spirit. Whatever had separated from, the God, from God, now they are again one. It's a massive error that consumes our world today. A massive, massive error. It's the same error that's consumed society since the Garden of Eden. And that error is believing that happiness comes from a life of rebellion against the Creator. It is the error of believing that some way, somehow, that the one who created you, God Himself, and created every single function of your mind and body and has one grand divine purpose for your life, which is to glorify Him, that outside of that model of God can be found restoration or satisfaction of the soul in any shape or form. I say that because the entire society is devoted to self-delusion. You know that. Self-destruction. The eyes have been blinded by the rule of this world to love what God hates, to lust for those things that kill them, to want those things that turn their life upside down, to long for satisfaction that turns to dust in their mouths, to hunger for corruption and sin and self-glory, and then to propagate that same kind of real life and real living and real satisfaction when it is a counterfeit and deadly to the core. Romans 1, if you go there, just to remind yourself of this most incredible and yet daunting truth. Romans 1, the Apostle Paul makes this extremely clear, cannot be stated too many times, especially in the day in which we live. He says, for even though, verse 21, they, the world, knew God, they did not glorify Him as a God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish dark was, heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so their bodies would be dishonored among them. And he goes on to list those different sins and those dishonorable passions all throughout. This is a life of unbelief. The life of unbelief, the life of pseudo-blessedness, of, of quasi-happiness is seen in all of the sins that God has given them over to. The same idea is made clear by the Apostle Paul again in 1 Corinthians 1.18. You don't have to turn there. You know it well. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What is so tragic as you contemplate true happiness that only comes from true forgiveness, that comes from the true Creator, it, what is so tragic and sad and hard to grasp in many ways, and I want you to think about this, and we're going to think about this today, we're going to think about this next week as well, is that this was true 
In the life of David as a believer in the Most High God, he believed God, he loved God, so did his son Solomon in so many ways. And yet, knowing this about God, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life did not escape them as being what they wanted more than God himself. God did allow them to pursue sin against the Lord himself in ways that were inconceivable, specifically with King David in the sexual pleasure of another man's wife. We are told in 2 Samuel 11, as you start to remember Bible stories that you've heard probably your whole life, that it was in the weakest moment of King David's life that he saw Bathsheba, beautiful, and therefore he began to plunge into sin. And though he was the king of Israel, though he was uh, the one who has the most power, the monarch, he was the king that God had richly blessed his life, he still fell headlong into a wicked sin that would become to him one of the greatest sources of pain and suffering imaginable. An act of such unimaginable selfishness that he would allow himself to dive into adultery and murder as well. It was an act of cruelty and perversion. And yet, even with that truth still echoing in our minds, even a sin of such magnitude and such horror became for him a cause for profound gratitude. Profound gratitude because as deep as his sin had crushed him, God's forgiveness was deeper, deeper. And so David says he is blessed. In fact, it's twice blessed he speaks of back in Psalm 32. He says, I have a relieved heart and a thankful heart. And he unpacks that force. And what's so amazing in this psalm is here, the very first two verses, David kind of grants us a lesson about how true happiness comes from forgiveness that only Yahweh can provide. It's within this first point, but you'll see the delineation here. He does this so simply. You almost might miss it if you weren't really looking for it because he just rapidly speaks of these different angles which constitute happiness, these different areas of divine intervention that are so helpful for us to examine. And then on top of that, as you're going to see, he's going to grant us the resulting behavior that becomes the litmus test for all of us to compare ourselves. And so if you're thinking about the specifics here, he's going to go through sin in three different terms, and then he's going to counter it with what God does with that sin in three different terms. He's going to talk about being forgiven and covered and not accounted for first and foremost. And just to break this down for you, It's going to seem a little bit grammatical here, but it's important to do that. I give thanks to James Montgomery Boyce for studying these words and just putting them into a succinct way that were so helpful. But the first word that you see here in verse 1 is transgression. Transgression, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, which literally means a going away. It's a departure or in this case, it's a rebellion against God and as authority. And this is what makes the sin so dreadful. This is what makes the sin so hideous and, and off course is because this transgression is not just against other people whom we hurt. It's rooted in sin against God. It's why Psalm 51 contains the words, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
It's not that David hadn't sinned against others. Of course he had. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against his own body. But in light of the enormity of the sin against God, that sin matters the most. All other sins faded into the background. So much so as we shall see when we study Psalm 51 that it wasn't even on his mind compared to what he had done to God. In my library, I have a collection of sermons from the Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren, who's a master of being able to put into words what is being expressed here, the thought that I'm trying to communicate. He says it this way. You do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart, or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature, or as a crime against your own fellows. You have not got to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. There's a second word that, again, he just brings out from the very beginning, again in verse 1. And the word is translated in Hebrew, sin, just straightforward sin. It's not exactly the equivalent that we have in the Greek for harmatia. Both mean coming short. Both of those words mean falling short of a mark. Actually, in the ancient world, uh, the archer it was used as a picture of a person who, who shoots at a target and the arrow falls short. It does not hit the target. And so the target is God's law in this example. And the sin described by this word is just a failure to measure up to the standard of God. Then he brings up a third word for sin. And here in verse 2, it's iniquity. How blessed is the man whose iniquity God will not take into account. Here, again, it means corrupt. It means twisted. It means crooked. Boyce actually says it rounds out the other terms. In what way does this term, iniquity, round out the other terms? He says, first, it describes the sin in view of our relationship with God. It pictures our rebellion against Him. Second, the word describes the sin in relation to divine law, the law that God has given. We have fallen short of it, therefore we're condemned by it. And the third word describes sin in relationship just to ourselves. It's a corruption or twisting of right standards as well as our own beings. To the degree that we indulge in sin, we both become twisted. We both become creatures that are unrecognizable from what it is that we have been designed to be. And then what's so amazing by this is the three words for sin are then matched in this opening stanza. Now that I say it, you're going to see it by a second set of terms describing what God does with those sins and the sins of those who confess it. And I want you to notice he forgives it, he covers it, and he refused to count it or to impute it against the sinful person. You're going to see this. He, he, he blessed be the man or woman who can be forgiven because their sin is covered, because their sin is not taken into account. So please, first, the first word here is forgiven, and it literally means to have our sin lifted off, to have the sin lifted off. You and I probably have a common experience, and that would be that when I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin and I pleaded with the Lord to save my soul, 
in my life, I had a physical sense of a, of a, of a burden being released. I'm not trying to be touchy-feely. It's just the truth. It was a physical sense of my weight of sin is gone. And that is kind of the sense that he's painting here too. Before the sin is confessed, we, we, we carry it like a burden. We carry the sin, but when we confess it, God lifts it from our shoulders. If you read the Pilgrim's Progress, I know you're like me. It's impossible to think of even that metaphor of, of sin being lifted from the shoulder without thinking of, of John Bunyan's classic tale where he says that Christian, the lead character, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell off of his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth where it fell in and was seen no more, the mouth of the grave. And that's the picture. That's the picture of what also David is painting here because that happens to all Christians. When we confess our sin, God removes it as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, 12. And he no longer remembers it, Isaiah 43, 25. People say all the time, how can God forget anything? He doesn't forget it. He refuses to remember it. He remembers it no more. The second word that describes what God does with our sin is it says here that it is covered. Verse 1b, whose sin is covered. It's a strong term. It's a religious term, actually, back in the day. It was taken from the imagery of the Day of Atonement in the Jews. And on the Day of Atonement, a high priest of Israel would take blood, as we know, from an animal that has been sacrificed in the courtyard of the temple, and it's carried into the most holy place where it's sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat is this lid. It's a covering of the Ark, and the blood was sprinkled there because thereby it became a symbol of the presence of God, symbolized by the space of the wings of the cherubim above the Ark, and that the broken law of God, which was contained within the Ark itself, now it was covered by the blood and it was covered, this broken law, shielding the sinner from judgment. That's the picture. And in Greek, the word for mercy seat means actually propitiation, which when you think of that, you think of 1 John, which is the act of turning God's wrath aside. But in Hebrew, the word is covering. It's, it's a term used by David in our psalm. And then we have a third word that's also just in this opening segment, and that has, what does God do with sin that is negative? It says that Yahweh will not take into account. He will not take into account. It describes what God will not do. He does not count sin against us. For whatever reason, this is the truth that electrifies my heart, that he doesn't count it against us. Very much what Pastor John said earlier, sin is not the issue. It's forgiven sin. Sin doesn't go away. Sin is forgiven. And not, that knowledge is so important. The word count elsewhere, it, it's also translated as impute. It's like a bookkeeping term, as a count especially suggests. It's the word used by Paul in Romans to explain how God writes our sin onto Christ's ledger and then punishes it in him, while at the same time writing the righteousness of Christ onto our ledger and counting us as justified because of his merit, the great exchange. Amen is right. And that's why Paul quotes these particular verses 
in, and others, as we shall see in a moment in Romans 4. So this is what has happened, just to keep you up to speed. This is what God has done. He has taken the sin. He has taken it in every single possible way imaginable. And he has forgiven and he's covered and he's not taken into account the sins of those who believe. And then David adds this most important comment under the blessedness of being forgiven. He says that this happiness comes to those who now, and you'll see it at the very end of verse 2, who have no deceit in their spirit, no guile, no guile in them. This is, this is widespread. This is massive, all-encompassing kind of forgiveness that comes from God and God alone and produces in the sinner an open, vulnerable, sensitive spirit that's had all of the deception wiped away, that comes out of such a sinful life, and now the man or woman is just no longer cunning, no longer wants to allow dishonesty to reign. Now they admit their sin. They hold nothing back. They reject the deception that was so intrinsic to their very being. They can no longer live with themselves in that way. They choose to stop the deception from themselves and from God. This is the evidence. There is no deceit. Of course, he's not talking about sinlessness. He's talking about a heart that no longer is clinging to sin. This is the internal reality that manifests on the outside. And this is the expression of joy. So true happiness You want an idea of what is true happiness? You want to know where true happiness comes from? According to God and and King David, blessedness, true happiness, true bliss comes from a forgiven heart. But also, we're going to see the second lesson of a repentant sinner. The second lesson that a repentant sinner learns is not only that true, true happiness comes from a forgiven heart, but number two, true hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. True hardship comes from an unconfessed heart. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You want to know what true hardship is? People say they're going through hard times all the time. It was a hard time. The pandemic was a hard time. And yes, it was hard. But you know what true hardship is? True hardship, what makes a truly hard life is when you keep silent about your sin and you do not confess it before God. That's what David did, as we shall see. Why? Why would you do that? Why would you sin and not confess that sin before God? Because the issue of silent sin or unconfessed sin, sin is when we believe that true hardship is in the physical life. Uh, True hardship is just disease-oriented. That's that's tough. That's hard. That hardship is, is physical deterioration. But when we think that, we miss the point in David's case that true hardships were a result of his sin. 
It was a result of sin roaming around his mind, sin that actually steeped down into his bones, into his marrow. If we're trying to place this section, think of it with me in a historical setting in David's life, according to what we know, most likely it would have happened in the time between the death of Uriah and the death of David's son from Bathsheba. So this particular point of Psalm 32 happens somewhere between Samuel eleven twenty-seven and 2 Samuel 12, verse 1. So I want you to go there with me. Just turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and then you can kind of flip back and see the very end of chapter 11 as we go through this together. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and then we'll just go back. I'm going to read this to you, and then you can see the point, hopefully, as it unfolds. 2 Samuel 12, 1. Then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, and the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat his morsel of bread and drink of his cup and lie on his bosom. And he was like a daughter, and, it, and was like a daughter to him. Now a visitor came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you over to your master's house, your master's wives, into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight. You can stop there. Now, that is the beginning of chapter 12, as you know. Now, go back to the end of chapter 11. Then the time of mourning passed by, and David sent and gathered her to his house, meaning Bathsheba, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Yahweh. Now, between verse 27, that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and verse 1, then Yahweh sent Nathan to David, there is a time passage. And if you read it quickly, of course, you don't notice the time passage, but something had happened. We know that the commonly practiced Old Testament Custom included of, of, of Bathsheba losing her husband, Uriah, included weeping, included wailing, it included mournful high-pitched cries, rolling in dust, and she would modify her garb, she would put on sackcloth, uh, she would wear garments that identified her as a widow, and some say, traditionally speaking, that took about a week. That was about a week of customary widowed kind of mourning. But we know it was more than a week, don't we? 
It was more than a week between verse 27 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12 because you have to take into account that the text tells us that Bathsheba bore him a son. So we know you can add between now 39 and 40 weeks into this gap. So for 280 days, 40 weeks, three trimesters or trimesters or just a little more than nine months, David's heart was unconfessed. He was silent to God that entire time. He had taken advantage of a woman who was under the influence of his power. He had disgraced her and led her into sin. He had covered up the sin. He had put her husband into open shame with those that knew David. And then he orchestrated the murder of his faithful man to keep his sin quiet. And for nine months and 11 days, David watched his adultery grow, his wife suffer, his soldiers whisper, and his soul harden. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, David possibly never confessed his sin to himself, and he definitely never confessed his sin to God. There are those in the world who refuse not only to confess sin, but to confess sin to God. They refuse to admit the sin of abortion. They refuse to admit the sin of homosexuality, the sin of drunkenness, the sin of lust and pride, all of which corrupt and devastate families and individuals and are wicked and ruthless and are filthy. Their hearts have been so corrupted, their hearts have been so hardened that without the miracle of regeneration by God, it would be impossible for them not only to confess their sin to God, first and foremost, but to confess their sins to themselves. I have killed, I have committed adultery, I have usurped my authority, and for nine months plus, I refuse to do what Augustine said that the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself as a sinner. As Pastor John again so clearly said, what sends people to hell is not sin, but unforgiven sin. You cannot be forgiven of your sin until you recognize the possible that you possess sin and you need forgiveness of sin. There is, this is unarguable. This is, this is without dispute. It's essential. And when it comes to unbelieving sinners, stay with me in this. When it comes to unbelieving sinners, you expect that. You you don't expect them to acknowledge sin and acknowledge their sin before God. Even when our Lord stood before Pilate, the crowds were so full of bloodlust. For Jesus, they cried, let him be crucified. And then they said, let his blood be on us and our children, Matthew 27. So, not, not a trace of sin in their hearts, not a trace of wickedness in their minds, and yet Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not, they know not what they do. People who have convinced themselves that their biological sex is not their psychological sex, that's, the, that's, that's their delusion. They, they don't know that they don't know. They are unbelievers who repress the truth and unrighteousness so much so that their reason has become callous. They are hard and dead to truth. And as devastating as that might be, we are speaking of men and women in the world who will not, who cannot 
confess their sin to God, much less to themselves. But, you see where I'm going. (laughs) David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. David was the king of Israel. David was king over God's people. David was God's chosen man. So how can he said, I kept silent about my sin? Was David in denial? Was was David delusional? Was David aware that adultery was sin? Was, Was David aware that conspiracy to murder is murder? How can a believer, how can a man or woman whose eyes were open be so blind to the depth of sin month after month after month? Because a believer, yes, even you, can prolong sin and practice sin and conceal sin so often that eventually you convince yourself that you're right, that your sins are not as horrible and dark and wicked as they really are. It's possible that some might say, well, when the Apostle Paul speaks of David, quotes Psalm 32 in Romans 4, our time is away and we'll speak about this next time, that it's really not about salvation, or excuse me, sanctification, it's about salvation. And we'll go to Romans 4 in our next time in this passage and show you that that's not actually the case But regardless, David refused to either acknowledge his sin or recognize his sin, and David's whole being knew it. Give me two more minutes. He knew it. His life was hard. Why? God's hand, back to Psalm 32, verse 4, your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. God kept pushing and pushing and pounding down on his whole being and his whole body felt it. And his whole body, though David's lips resisted to call his sin by sin, regardless, his body knew it. And when David saw his reflection in the mirror, he couldn't deny that something was wrong with him. This is not some kind of psychosomatic kind of episode as he convinced himself that he was ill and so therefore he became ill or anything like that. No, this, not really. This is David knowing on the inside that he has sinned, though he didn't want to admit it. So his whole system begins to suffer. His bones, his vitality, his life started to become eroded. It's like a drug addict that sees himself as, healthy and in truth he's just dying at such a rapid pace in every second and every month and so we see when a believer covers their sin God does not cover their sin but once he uncovers or she uncovers sin God covers it and blesses it and changes everything and though David feels the agony and the pain and the slow eating away of his life he's going to share with us In verse 5, he finally came to his senses. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not cover up. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. More lessons to come, and we'll see that next time. Pray with me.
Father, we all are accountable to what this psalm teaches. There is not a man, woman, or child in this room that does not understand the fact that we must confess sin. First, to ourselves, we must recognize that we are sinners, that that is the acknowledgement of true wisdom, true knowledge is in seeing ourselves rightly. That's where true happiness comes from, as long as we see ourselves as forgiven. Father, thank you for King David, and though the misery and the torture of this corrupt sin is so vivid, we thank you, as we shall see in the weeks to come, that you have allowed him to record the other side of that coin, that you can be found, and you can be found at a time where it is most available to the sinner to have applied to them full restoration, full communion, and full love in walking with you. Let, let any in this room that has not confessed sin to their own heart or to you do that even today, and let that restoration, that true healing begin as life returns. And we ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.